You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's 1,000 feet below the sea, and on this experimental submarine is the governor of Florida. And his goal is to claim the ocean floor for the state of Florida. And the United States, too. He's going to place the Florida flag down there first. The governor uses the pincer arms on his friend's submarine to plant the flags. Palm Beach Post, 1967. Witnessed by a school of fish and a big white crab, Governor Claude Kirk planted two flags in the bottom of the ocean floor eight miles off Miami. We just followed the lead of the Spanish, who said, We're here, and this is mine. But he didn't complete his submarine voyage without a dig on the Democratic president and his intended future political rival. He radioed the reporters in the boat above. I just found President Johnson's approval rating. It's 965 feet below sea level. This to me is just such a moment. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. I'm just selling orange juice. His gray suit fine tailored his navy tie, his two hands raised fingers out as if he was holding two invisible oranges. A look on his face, like he was looking for an answer from you. I'm just selling orange juice. A single strand of hair draped over his forehead, like some 220 pound 40 year old Elvis. He was Florida, Claude Roy Kirk, and Florida was him. For four years, anyway. Then maybe he'd go and sell something else. Claude Kirk wasn't one to, say, hide his abilities from the world. He told the ambassador at the United Nations that if the UN was looking for a king, Claude Kirk would be it. That was going to happen. But nobody who knew him was surprised he said it. Most knew this governor of Florida was not going to be governor of Florida forever. Everybody, through all the headlines and punchlines that he generated, could tell he'd be taking a show somewhere else soon. For the time, though, he was just selling orange juice. And if the federal government wants to take our money away, our money, they're going to have to wrestle this governor. He didn't really talk like that, using words like wrestle. He just seemed to talk like that when he needed to. Ain't nobody going to lay a hand on Claude Kirk. He had confidence. He had arrogance. But he was boosted by this fact. The last time a member of the Republican Party had sat in his seat, had been elected Florida governor, was 1872. And the last time any guy had served as Florida governor, who was GOP, was 1878. Some not very interested bearded guy named Stearns, former union officer here as part of the Reconstruction government. And when Redeemers took back Florida, they kicked him out. And since then, every election from 1878 onward, somebody from the Democratic Party was always elected governor. And that goes from the horse and buggy days, to the days of movie and radio, to the automobile, to the television set. Oh, there was that one time the state elected a prohibitionist for two years in 1916, but that was it. In the 1950s, Democrats joked that the three members of the state legislature in Tallahassee who were Republicans could caucus in a phone booth. It's so bad that when you get to 1966, nobody wants the nomination for governor because they didn't think they could win. A congressman from the state's only GOP area to speak of, the Tampa-St. Pete area, has 10 years of experience in Congress. He doesn't want to run for governor. Who wants to run and lose? The little GOP party gives it to a businessman whose only experience was selling insurance and whose only political experience is that he had just lost a Senate race. And unlike other Republicans 
who would be perfunctory, ready to lose. Kirk does something different. He's going to actually make a race of it. To hear him tell it in 1966, Democrats need to stop laughing. Claude Kirk was going to win. Why? Because of Demo-Kirks. Democrats that are going to vote for Kirk. Tallahassee Democrat puts this word that he makes up into print the next day. It's too good not to. And that's the story of Kirk right there. He gets headline coverage because it's too good not to. He tells the paper, I'll win if I can just get 300,000 Demo-Kirks. Make that 400,000. He stumps. I'm an outside man. I admit that. We're going to get hold of crime. You can bet it. The state is crawling with gangsters. The mob is here. Corruption. It's finished. When Kirk gets in office. My war on crime will be bigger than anything Elliot Ness did. And this. I'll bring the Olympics to Florida. I will make the screwdriver the most popular drink in the nation, said the Tallahassee Democrat. Any logic would determine that Kirk has no chance to win. One newspaper said the election was over with the May Democratic primary. Can't we just end it now? Arrogant, these sources. But not crazy. That's the way it had gone for years. Win the Democratic primary, win the governorship. This year, though, they were wrong. Appreciation for the help, the support, the devotion of others can be expressed in many ways. It could be expressed by a simple thank you, or it could be expressed with flowery oratory. I prefer to express my appreciation in serving you as I have promised by constructive action. Flashbulbs, rolling film, Kirk in his first press conference as governor in a white tie and tails. Here's the Pensacola News. At a 25-minute news conference, the beaming Kirk landslide victor by some 150,000 votes said his first order of business as governor-elect would be setting up a sub-office of the governor's office in Miami to deal with crime. I said we would go to Miami, and here I am. I'm in the business of building a team, Kirk said. I don't owe nothing to nobody. There was Kirk, asking for an increase in salary of $9,000 for the governor, but then denying that for the legislators. Got to keep costs down. There he was, eschewing the state-provided propeller plane for the Learjet that he loved to travel around on. There was Kirk, getting more headlines than a governor of Florida should in this time. He starts his governorship with an image that's going to be embedded in everyone's mind. He brings, as the newspapers dub it, a mysterious Brazilian blonde to his inaugural. Now, it's going to turn out to be his fiance. It's a woman that's in the process of divorcing her husband in Brazil so she can marry Kirk. They will get married shortly, but the press dubs her Madam X. There was Kirk, asking for a $700 million cut in state budgets while increasing his own cost 25%, pulling off highway patrolmen for an enlarged bodyguard for the governor. I'm a public figure. Governor, didn't you say highway patrolmen should be on the highway? There was Kirk, going to Arkansas, going to Alabama, going on trips to secure future Republican delegates, perhaps. There he was, appearing with Ronald Reagan in California, weeks after being elected flying up to New York to see Rockefeller, being side-by-side -side with Eisenhower at Gettysburg. There was Vice President Nixon at his high-publicity wedding. Caesar's wife. State officials must be like Caesar's wife. There was Kirk dodging questions about his net worth, his sources of money. If you're so rich, why do we have a record that you just took 75000 at a bank loan? Who guaranteed it? And then later, when it was found that the loan had been paid off, who paid for it, Governor? There was Kirk on TV calling for a massive cut in school budgets. Hadn't he campaigned on raising those hundreds of millions of dollars? Calling the legislators names, which was no way to live up to a pledge that he wished to deepen the relationship between the new governor and Sunshine State elected representatives. Confrontation has been turned 180 degrees. The federal government is the violator, and I am the man who asked for law. There was Kirk. Say, I'm the most honest person I know. Canceling questions at press conferences. I am the man who pleads for hearing him. Flying off to Michigan to see George Romney. The Wall Street Journal calls him the go-go governor, and that name's going to stick. It seems like he's always going somewhere, often out of Tallahassee, sometimes out of the state. The first thing he does is tell the legislature to get in session in a special session to work on the Constitution, and 
it quickly becomes clear that Kirk won't be part of that special session. He's going on a honeymoon in the Florida Keys. Has he been governor a year? Said a paper after only a month. I think he's bored here already, said a reporter from the Miami Herald. He's running for something. VP, maybe even president. I could get the top job, Kirk tells a newspaper. I have as much a chance as Reagan does. That's off the record, son. There was Kirk, hiring his own private state police forces, 30 agents, and promising to fundraise to pay for it. There was Kirk, putting up 800 billboards around the state to advertise the war on crime that he was conducting before it began, asking for a Washington office to promote Florida, of course. There was Kirk vetoing a $21 million junior college bill and then saying that was probably a mistake to veto it. And there was Kirk giving his press aide a top $150,000 today's dollars job in development that he had no experience for. There's Kirk playing baseball against the press team. Even that makes headlines. He breaks his arm. He told reporters, because of my war on crime, the mafia has put a price on my head of $50,000. One of his aides confirmed it. Law enforcement did not. There's Kirk on the Learjet. The bills come in. His own party cuts off paying for his travel. I'll pay for it, he said. There's Kirk, guaranteeing that the Republican National Committee will come to Miami Beach for the 1968 convention to pick a president. The cost is $350,000. Not a dime to the taxpayers. I'll pay for it, Kirk says. Who is Claude Roy Kirk? How did he suddenly get to where he was? If you knew him. If they were in the insurance business in Florida, they knew him as a top salesman. If they cataloged losing opponents in races, and most didn't. They knew he had tried to run against popular Spencer Holland, senator from Florida. Told everyone he could beat him and then went down to defeat. Didn't even get 40% of the vote. Tried to use Lyndon Johnson to attack Holland, demanding that Holland state if he supported LBJ's policies, which are ultra-liberal. He lost because Holland didn't answer him at all. It didn't help that Goldwater couldn't win in Florida in 64 the way he won other southern states because of that large senior vote. Goldwater had attacked Social Security. He also had said something about wanting to see Florida drift off. Kirk lost that election, but because no one paid attention, he didn't get the usual charge of loser that some people in politics get and find it difficult to come back from. Most forgot his campaign at all, and most forgot, certainly, that he owed his campaign manager $15,000. He didn't forget, and this would earn him the first of what would be many GOP enemies. The people closest to Kirk often were the ones that wouldn't do something for free or loan him money ever again. A 50,000 candle power smile, says one newspaper. Mr. Kirk has been attracting attention for 25 years since he was an awkward adolescent in Montgomery, Alabama, taking jiu-jitsu lessons to make him graceful. Mr. Kirk courted Florida, this is an article from 67, as he courted women with a big smile and a wink and a kiss on the hands for the female spectators. And for the men, he would tell them he would cut their taxes. But has he a chance? Says the Tallahassee Democrat. All logic and experience must answer that his chances are slight. He flew all over, always, on his Learjet. Children would flock to him. He loved children, women. He loved shaking hands. He'd campaign everywhere, anywhere. He even campaigned in prison. He shook hands with death row inmates and said, if I'm elected, I might have to sign your warrant. But I want to look you in the eye before I do it. The death penalty was a key issue for him. 
I'm a poor man who made it big, he would tell these audiences. I was raised in the Alabama cotton fields. But as reporters tried to ask how big he had made it, how much money did he have, he'd never answer. Oh, well, with the Johnson inflation, I don't know what my position will be till tomorrow. In 1966, you could get away with answers like that, a time or two. Reporters in the small network of Florida press were starting to catch on. The GOP was changing, and they were recruiting thousands of first-time volunteers to get involved in politics in 66. Something else, with the population booming, many Republicans in the North were coming down south. And they didn't want to join the Democratic Party. In counties that never had one, you started to have a GOP organization. Fresh faces, new people. Among the many reasons I want to talk about this oddball governor, Claude Roy Kirk, I mean, of course, you know the obvious. There's a there's a fellow that might be running for president, right? That's a governor from Florida and has a kind of brash style, a confrontation style that matches up. But at the same time, I think you can see in some of the elements I'm talking about, Kirk resembles a prototype of a future, now former president. But there's other richness in the story. And one of it is, I think, I encourage you to think in a more broad way when people talk about the Southern strategy and the switch of the South from a primarily Democratic region to a primarily Republican one. And it's not all strategy. It's not all Nixon. It's not all Strom Thurmond. It's also some grassroots. You have to be real about that, particularly in Florida. It's Northerners who are coming and bringing Republican politics into a southern states. Sometimes that's a more liberal Republican politics than we might be used to now. But nonetheless, that's how the organization gets started here. Few gave Kirk a chance in this year, though. It was bad journalism, no doubt, but the newspapers, their part, they could be forgiven. Democrats win in Florida. Republicans lose by hundreds of thousands of votes. That's the way it goes. Teddy Roosevelt lost in Florida running for president both times. Al Smith won here, but you got the sense something was changing. Tallahassee Democrat publishes his new word. We might hear it often, the newspaper says. Demo Kirks. This fellow's going after this race. He's not the frustrated, figure-bred type of Republican. But all logic and experience must answer that his chances are slight. You know, you could start to piece it together and say that they should have known something was coming. The Democratic domination of Florida was showing signs of cracking. First of all, the state's growing, almost 20% a year. 2.7 million people in 1950, 5 million in 1960, 6 million in 1966 when he's running. It keeps growing. These are new people. And things were changing politically really since the 1928 election with Herbert Hoover on the ticket. Democrats, you know, again, even though he won the state, Catholic Al Smith depressed to turn out a bit. And Herbert Hoover helped to carry Pinellas County Republicans locally in county races for sheriff, county judge, assessor for state senator. Republicans had never been seen winning these type of county offices. 20 years later, Thomas E. Dewey runs. He's beating Truman by huge margins in Pinellas, Sarasota, Palm Beach, Broward, Orange. Gets a third of the statewide vote. Not enough to win, but enough to bring a lot of local officials and start building a party. In the 50s, there's a Republican congressman for the first time representing the Tampa area, William Kramer. And then in 52 and 56, Eisenhower Nixon carries the state. And in 1960, Nixon prevails in Florida as a presidential nominee. He attracts votes from many Democrats who will remain Democrat, but vote for the Republican. Something to note if you're one of those people, and it might be an esoteric discussion, but if you're one of those people out there on the internet discussing this Southern strategy debate or the party switch debate, and there's pro and con. Like, you know, a lot of people never actually switched their party affiliation. They just started switching how they vote. They remained Democrats and voted for Reagan, voted for Nixon, and things like that. And there were members of the Florida legislature who would have been more conservative than some of the national Republicans, but retained the Democratic. You know, it took a very long time for everyone, for the majority to start voting Republican and also switching their party to Republican. There's been a lot of controversy about that because the counter push to allegations that the South switched from Democrat to Republican is that, well, no, most of the local officials stayed Democrat. That, that is true. Uh, the good majority of them 
as long as they could and as they aged, probably kept their party, while the way their voters were voting changed. So in 1960, as we said, Nixon carries Florida because there's this Democrats for Nixon group. And who heads it up? An insurance salesman named Claude Kirk. Kirk wants converts now that he's running as his own candidate. He's offered by Congressman William Kramer, let's just share headquarters. Put your headquarter here in Tampa. Kirk makes the decision to open headquarters far away. He doesn't want any part of Kramer. And Kramer's perturbed about it. People notice. This is going to be one of the many things that will lead to an inner GOP feud. But right now, Kirk realized if he sets up with Kramer, everyone's just going to say you're part of the GOP establishment. He wants he wants to attract Democrats to vote for him as a different type of Republican. But could that type of Republican win Florida? Yeah, less than 40% of the vote in a Senate race. But his luck changes because the Democratic Party splits. So it's not just him, his charming manner, his lightning bolt energy, his Learjet flying. It's a whole story. But basically, in an attempt to never have a Republican governor of Florida to prevent that from happening in a tricky maneuver, the Democrats end up losing the governorship of Florida. And it happens this way. The Democrats in Florida start realizing Republicans can win presidential races. Look at 52, 56, 60. We don't want governor's races at the same time because there might be a pull of votes as these voters are coming out voting for the Republican candidate for president. They might vote for the Republican candidate for governor. So we're going to switch our gubernatorial elections to the midterm two years after. But how do we do that when we're already on this four-year cycle? They create a special single two-year governorship in 64, and then that'll be up in 66. Hayden Burns is a good old boy, conservative, Jacksonville Democrat. A clear-cut understanding of their philosophies and their programs and the background from which they were drawing their experience, I think they could be of great value. Connected you with what would be called then the old pork chop. Old system of doing business in Florida where the statewide money is funneled to individual county chiefs, sheriffs, political leaders, machines, to dole out the jobs, to dole out road spending into their local districts, to take mostly the money from the inner cities, might be generating, and make sure that that statewide money gets to these local kingdoms. Pork chop gang, it's called. That's Hayden Burns. He wins, and for two years, he's governor of Florida. He expects in 66, he's not going to get much of a challenge, but he does. And that challenge comes from Robert King High, who is the mayor of Miami. He's a new type of Democrat. He's done some reforms in city government. You and I are asking the people of Florida to give to us the most important possession that they own, and that is their right to vote or their vote. People like him. He's a very popular mayor of Miami. He served now for almost a decade. He's also pro-civil rights, which makes him a very different type of Florida Democrat and very different from Governor Hayden Burns. Burns resents that he even runs. I'm disappointed again tonight uh, that my opponent will not appear on this basis. First of all, this was a special maneuver where Democrats could be exposed. This wasn't a thing that, that other Democrats were supposed to mess with. You know, Hayden should get four years, but he's getting two because of this special maneuver to move the governor's elections. Secondly, Miami, the rule about Miami was statewide Democrats in Florida who tended to be conservative, these pork chop Democrats, could tolerate things going on in Miami, say, but don't run for office statewide, was kind of the unwritten rule. But it was indeed unwritten. And so High breaks it, enters the primary, and beats Burns in the primary by 90,000 votes. The primary is the real election in Florida. There is over a million votes cast. That means there's a half million people who voted for Hayden Burns, and they're still mad. Burns decides he cannot in good conscience endorse Robert King High. He's too liberal. He only won because of the block vote. And and I'm not mispronouncing. He, he says the block vote, but it's a code word for what type of vote he's talking about. He's talking about an inner city vote that votes in a block, as if his conservatives never had any machines or voting in blocks. But put that aside. He won't endorse 
Claude Kirk directly. That would be blasphemy in democratic circles. But he also sits on his hands. He secretly tells his business community's donors, support Kirk. Now the Democratic Party split. This from Edmund Kalina's Claude Kirk and the Politics of Confrontation. Journalists blindly continued to predict victory for high. They never stopped predicting it. Seven leading writers predicted victory by 100,000 votes. And in the beginning, there was reason to suggest this. Poll shows high with a 51 to 34 percent lead over Kirk. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Kirk attacked his opponent as a free-spending ultra-liberal, and when the two men appeared before Dade County League of Women Voters, Robert King Highwood make statements of national importance and statements about issues and avoid going to Kirk's level. He promised to lower the voting age in Florida from 18 to 21 and demand a constitutional bar on the income tax. Florida still to this day doesn't have one. So that was a bipartisan issue. But Kirk would attack high on inflation. Inflation is the way with the ultra-liberal. High didn't aim any rounds back at Kirk. He didn't want to get caught up in it. Kirk focused on that he would never raise taxes but High focused on property taxes. See, the ownership of homes is imperiled, he said. High's issue was a good issue, popular one, but a little more complicated than Kirk's because it might requiring the raising of some taxes, perhaps sales taxes or something else, to pay for relief for property taxes. This issue happens in states, I don't know, particularly people that live in the Northeast still today. There's a little talk in some of the opinion sections of the newspapers. Overheard, said an article in August, High will blow it. He's been drawing fire from those in Democratic circles. He's surrounded by all those cocky people who don't know a thing, said a source. Kirk makes a move on July 12th. He meets with the state comptroller, who he knows supports his conservative vision, a Democrat Fred Dickinson, and supports the plan of the Education Commissioner Floyd Christian to spend more money on schools. But he only supports the spending of more money, not the raising of taxes for it. When asked where the money, some $265 million for education that Christian had proposed would come from, he suggested that his position would be outlined in a series of white papers. The only thing worse than being wrong, Kirk thought, as a candidate was being dull. Reporters asked what he did in Brazil. He would tell audiences that his time in Brazil was spent fighting communism. He was more interested in overthrowing things than getting along. But he wasn't just a loony. Claude Kirk had a powerful memory for names and faces. He worked 18-hour days on campaign, and he traveled. 
It didn't bother him. It energized him. These were great things for the job he was seeking. Once came to a campaign event on a horse. Cowboy boots and a multicolored Indian hat were not uncommon. Keep the deterrent, he said, again and again, pushing the death penalty issue. High was opposed, opposed unalterably, said, to the death penalty. High did attack Kirk by noting that Kirk promoted a $100 million fertilizer enterprise in one of his trips to Brazil, which would enable that company to grab part of Florida's world citrus market. Brazil, High said, is the arch competitor for citrus markets all over the world. Florida shipped 1 million boxes of citrus to West Germany until Brazil took the market away. And you have Kirk to thank for that. That's what High said. Brazil isn't going to be the issue of the campaign, Kirk responded, and kept hammering him. Plus, he tax on crime. The shame of Miami on crime is not a new shame. It's a shame brought on by years of purposeless leadership. It's the number two sin city in the world. When a reporter asked Kirk about his own issues, his own finances, he'd say, aren't you pro-business? He'd make it about the reporter. He hated the St. Petersburg Times. Only a little less than he hated the Miami Herald. As of September 16th, Robert King High was predicting a victory by runaway margin. He even voiced criticism that with all the crude tactics and impolite attacks of Claude Kirk against him, might end up liquidating the Florida GOP. But by mid-October, Kirk had closed the gap. And one of the reasons was though High tried to patch up things with Governor Burns, he never could. Both candidates had 44% in October and just 12% were undecided. The attacks went out now. High brought out what Democratic Party establishment he could, those not loyal to Burns. Kirk is a tinhorn messiah, he said. He's a political nobody. Every time you ask him a question about something, he tells you to go look at his white papers. And none of the reporters have time to do that. His white papers were compared to the kind that you buy in rolls in the supermarket. On the weekend before the polls would open, the sheriff of Dade County, T.A. Buchanan, was indicted on corruption charges. The mayor has nothing to do with the sheriff of Dade County. And Kirk probably knew this, but most people don't. The governor, not looking to help High, suspended the sheriff of High's home county. That was damaging enough. But even though High wasn't a direct supervisor for the sheriff, Governor Burns now issues a statement that says there's another sealed indictment of a Miami official, a high-ranking official not named. It's a lie. And the judge in the case actually says so publicly. He says this is a damned lie, but the damage is done right before the election. Kirk's no dummy. He knows that he's getting all this help from the current Democratic governor, and he's going to want to run Kirk's governorship, you know, run the throne from behind the scenes. Kirk leads him on, but he has no intention of doing that. On election day, Kirk would win against Democratic candidate Robert King High, 821,190 votes, 55% of the vote, to 668,044% of the vote for High. It was also a Republican year, 66. Reagan was elected governor of Florida. Paul Douglas, longtime Democratic senator in Illinois, defeated by a GOP candidate. Nelson Rockefeller was reelected in New York. Edward Brooke, African-American Republican senator elected in Massachusetts. The tide couldn't help Earl Eisenhower, the former president's brother, win for clerk of Chicago's Cook County. That was a tough job anyway. George Romney wins a third term in Michigan. Democrats lost nearly 50 seats in the House, but still held Congress. Said Barry Goldwater, it was an LBJ backlash. He was particularly still bitter over losing a couple of years before. But still, Kirk's election shocked. As one Democrat who had switched over to the Kirk side said, sometimes meat doesn't cure, it becomes rancid. In Florida, that's how the voters felt. Headlines the next day. No secret now. Governor Burns backed Kirk. I don't want to leave any doubt, the governor said. I am extremely pleased that Mr. Kirk was a successful candidate yesterday. I don't think there's been any doubt to which campaign I was for. Well, he hadn't endorsed him. Kirk is off to a spectacular start, says the New York Times. 
Florida's new governor, 40-year-old overweight ladies' man, is being referred to variously as Kissing Claude and Adam Clayton Kirk. He had left on vacation with a 32-year-old Brazilian blonde. He left on the same day that he was sworn in, leaving his friends and enemies alike gasping at his audaciousness. Just a month after Kirk takes office, he hires William Sapphire, a speechwriter for President Nixon, as a $90,000 publicist. Opponents for Kirk quickly realize the publicist isn't hired to promote the state of Florida out there. It's to promote Kirk. Sapphire gives him cachet with the national media chance at building a national movement. Also has connection to Nixon. Maybe Nixon will select him for VP. Kind of a media pay-to-play, but he does more. He gets some advice. Sapphire tells him, engage in the politics of confrontation. If the left can do it, if the hippies can be out there doing sit-ins and challenging folks. To join the yippies in the park and to stay in the park. And as far as we can see now, there's going to be a massive confrontation taking place there. Pouring blood on Humphrey and doing all kinds of stuff like that. Why can't the people in office? Why can't somebody who's like Kirk, who's right on some issues, left on a few, he takes on the legislature. He calls one of the leaders stupid. And the other one, head of the Senate, he compares to a windbag, an old radio carrot named Senator Klanghorn. They resented it. It's not how you do it in polite Tallahassee. Kirk hated the press as well. Said that the Tampa Bay Times was an editor that was out to get him. Just wanted Democrats in power forever. He said the Miami Herald. Notice how their offices are pointing the ocean. They don't even look at the state of Florida. They have no idea what's going on here. Associated Press. Governor Claude Kirk personally put a freckle-faced boy's sidewalk refreshment stand back in business Tuesday and managed to plug orange juice and free enterprise and knock the Johnson administration all in the same sip. Billy Churchill's business, the one that Brevard County Health Department closed down because he was operating without a permit, is frozen ice. But Billy, who believes the customer is always right, dashed into the house and came back with orange juice. Kirk drained it. When the 300 neighbors and school chums overflowed to the Churchill's front yard in what may be the most publicized ice pop stand in history, Kirk cut a ceremonial red tape ribbon as the small businessman opened his stand for the first time in five weeks. The 11-year-old's problem is symbolic, but one faced by millions of Americans today. Individual initiatives stifled by government red tape, Kirk said. It's wonderful that the governor would do this for me, red-haired Billy. I hope to make lots of money. He doesn't need to be told. He goes right at it. He first takes on Florida's cabinet. And you have to understand, the governorship to which Kirk wins this surprise election to has very little power. It's not like governors that we see today. The cabinet run most of the state. Governor chairs their meeting. They meet weekly. That's how important they are. Kirk wants this changed. He says, you're a committee, not a cabinet. I'll meet with you every two weeks. When they insist and go to court to force the meetings, Kirk decides to miss every other meeting. What about that fund, Governor? What do you mean? What about that loan that you received? Where'd you get the money from? Loan? Oh, well, I have a trust fund. I'm sure if I got a donation, it'd be reported. No, I don't mean the election. I mean after the election. Oh, that's in my trust fund. Well, who gave you the money in the trust fund? Well, that has to remain secret. You wouldn't want your trust fund to be exposed. He gets mad at Education Commissioner Floyd Christian and says he's going to take over the Education Commission himself. When he says he's going to take over state government, which, again, in a modern state, probably wouldn't be that outrageous a statement. But in 67 in Florida, the governor has limited constitutional powers. He says he'll take over state government anyway, stops paying checks, millions of dollars in payroll, and then goes on vacation with his wife in Germany and issues press releases from there cabinet, no doubt feeling powerless, refused his request for an office in Washington, as did the legislature. Tampa Bay Times hint at his presidential ambitions. It seems to be a first full-time job for him. He thinks he has at least as good a chance as Reagan, heading a favorite son delegation from Florida, which he thinks will get Southern support. Soon it's revealed that Kirk had run up a 300000 debt with costs from the Wackenhut private detective firm fighting crime. How will they raise the money? It soon turns out that the current dealership association in Florida has a meeting with Kirk present and directly solicits members for donations. Car dealerships, 
We're told the governor needs 1,000 each from you. When the head of the association saw reporters present, he quickly said, this is an executive session, by the way. Don't print anything. It was well known that Florida state agencies were about to start buying cars for the season. The governor needs 1,000 each from you. You've got state agency contract, and it's time for Florida to buy new cars. Plus, he's promised to veto that new sales tax on cars that the Democrats in the legislature want. You've got a friend in Claude Kirk. From the Pensacola News Journal, a project to put hundreds of billboards around the state promoting the Kirk War on Crime continues under full steam and comes closer to reality next week, a gubernatorial aide said Thursday. It's education. We're trying to give the people an educational approach about the war on crime that's going on. There's no intention to scare people. When a local county official is questioned by the Wackenhut Detective Agency, as is a staff member of a legislature, I'm a member of the legislature, people start asking, well, when are you going to start fighting the Miami crime? You know, all the mobsters you were talking about in the campaign. There's lots of types of crime, the governor says, petty stuff, violent kind, corruption, and the mob. We're going to fight all of them at once. Not everyone is so sure. No major effort to disrupt organized crime would be said to be done, not at least in his first year. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Kirk's private detective agency was compared to the Gestapo and NKVD by Democratic politicians and critics. At the same time, it was called amateurish and keystone cops to bring in private police like that. But Florida had no real statewide enforcement. Here's what Edmund Kalina says. The charge that Kirk was establishing a police state was absurd. Police states existed in Florida, but they were not Kirk's creation. They were the creation of sheriffs who served term after term and were above the law because they controlled the law in their counties. Anyone who wanted to examine as police state in Florida had only go had only to go to Lake County, one of several that would have qualified to see what a true police state was, Galena writes. There the sheriff terrorized blacks and any whites who got in his way while encountering little or no opposition from those so concerned about Kirk's activities. The war on crime Kirk conducted actually contributed to the erosion of local police states by reducing the immunity of sheriffs and making them more responsible to state authorities and the rule of law. For 10 months, Wackenhut and his detective agencies followed complaints from individuals. Citrus County, the chief clerk of the court, simply walked away. With $30,000. This despite the fact that he was a leading Sunday school teacher in the county and gave talks to kids about American patriotism. In Taylor County, commissioners, Wackenhust investigators found, had used 300000 on road improvements. That's good, except these weren't really public roads. They were roads that serviced private, various private property some of them the commissioner themselves. The sheriff of Columbia County was charged with prostitution and gambling. In Jefferson County, the sheriff couldn't explain why $18,000 was missing from his funds. In Gilcrest County, the sheriff was encouraged by Kirk to resign after a meeting to avoid what might be found in an investigation. Seminole County, Manatee County, from Wackenhut's point of view, investigating these things were easy because the officials weren't even hiding the crimes. Here's Ralph Tolandano. Crime in Florida must be rooted out, he thundered during the campaign. Then the man who claimed he alone knew how took off to California, Michigan, and New York to ask other governors for their advice. A report by the much understaffed Florida Sheriff Bureau issued shortly after Kirk took office laid it out for all to see. 
They identified 40 mafiosi permanently based in Florida, with an additional 60 associates living in the Sunshine State. The investigators, merely scratching the ground, identified 87 corporations with acted which acted as holding companies for mafia-controlled businesses, some 45 hotels and 25 restaurants and cocktail lounges run by Cosa Nostra. The situation was therefore tailor-made for any governor who really wanted to oust the mob from Florida. Almost any sincere action would have paid richly in the beginning. It would even produce the kind of headlines that Claude Kirk so loved. But Governor Kirk Tolandano writes, had neither the patience nor, some later suggested, the desire to take on the powerful crime interest in his state. What he wanted were headlines in which he could figure prominently a cops and robbers game, which would keep the state's attention occupied while he went about his other business. So said Ralph de Tolandano in Claude Kirk, The Man in Myth. In very little time, the mobsters who were supposedly the real targets of Kirk's righteous indignation were completely forgotten. Alarmed at first, the mafiosi had lost any fears of being rooted up from their luxurious existence. To heighten the drama of his war, however, Kirk let it be known that the mob wants Claude dead. Whatever the success or failure of the war on crime that Kirk was mounting, it is true that state officials then financed Florida's first statewide law enforcement agency, partially to counteract his expensive and unknown funding sourced private police. Here's Edmund Kalina. What cannot be doubted is that Kirk cared that a greater toll was not taken on organized crime in his four years was more the responsibility of scores of other individuals. He demanded an investigation of why properties worth millions were absent from the tax rolls in Dade County. He urged a vigorous inquiry into the activities of Meyer Lansky, the alleged mastermind of organized crime then living in Miami. Within the limited means of his disposal, he tried. He took an extraordinary step in 1969 of transferring Dade County State Attorney, a man not noted for his antagonism to organized crime, and brought in Robert Egan, a state's attorney, to replace him temporarily. 1967 was a year of riots. This is going to be the year that, that Newark has its riot and really rebellion on the streets. Florida's no exception. It Kirk acted pretty quickly and for most people positively, even if he took an extra heaping spoonful of credit for everything that happened. Tampa, May 1967, from the Tallahassee Democrat. More than 400 occupants of African-American slums rioted here today, exchanged gunfire with police, and burned an entire block of white store owners' stores in the Central African American District. The battle triggered when a policeman shot and killed a young burglary suspect. It broke out around 11 p.m. and was in force for two and a half hours. Governor Kirk is awoken and gets on his Learjet, flies to Tampa. He surveys the riot scene and meets with police. He also meets with African American leaders. By daybreak, the shooting had ceased, and blazes had been extinguished. This, uh, this from the from the Tallahassee Democrat. Smoke from the fire destroyed buildings, curled over dingy areas of bars, liquor stores, pool halls, and one-story business houses. A deputy sheriff died of a heart attack during the melee, and at least a dozen persons were injured, but no one else was killed. Governor Kirk's credited for generating calm by his appearance. One of the things he does, even if he is talking like a typical U.S. Southern governor at the time and using like, I'll wrestle the federal government and things like that, he goes out of his way to attack press reports that present exaggerating statistics about how many African Americans were rioting. This is particularly the Associated Press, the non-Florida papers. It says that there's a thousand people rioting. That's not true, he said. I didn't see any battling. I'm here. I'm unarmed. I'm walking around the street. He did have a sheriff nearby. I didn't see any EP reporters when I was around here either. He also goes out of his way to talk about African-American citizens who helped to quell the riot, who helped to pull others out of harm's way. Thank goodness I have the cameraman with me. The governor says that he's assured that the shooting that started the riots was justifiable homicide, whether that's true or not. Statement helps to calm things. He said he'd asked the legislature to look into vocational funding that they could get from the federal government. And he added, if the riots resume, 
This ain't Watts, but we can put troops here just as fast as they can if we need to. He stopped just enough to go to a popular restaurant in Tampa called Columbia Restaurant, famous for the black bean soup. His nervous security guard constantly saying, we've got to get out of here, Governor. December 15th, 1966, Walt Disney dies. This is a significant event in Florida because one of the things that had been talked about is that he had a vision to bring a new amusement park to Florida, just as he had done in California with Disneyland. And now they think the project will be abandoned. Roy Disney, Walt Disney's brother, who makes the call. They're going to go forward with the plan. And one champion of Walt Disney World is the Florida governor, Claude Kirk. Kirk signed a law which created the Reedy Creek Improvement District and granted the Walt Disney Company self-governing status. The five-bill package cleared the legislature in a burst of speed. Only five legislators in the House voiced any opposition. He makes a point emphatically of saying on any occasion he can, that it's not called Disneyland, this is Disney World. Move that earth, he says. Kirk is adamant. This will spawn a commercial industry of tourism in the state, and it will bring $3.5 billion into the Florida economy. Of all the promises that Claude Kirk will make that we'll talk about in this series... That one you could take to the bank. I want to thank you for listening. This is part one of what's going to be a three-part series. In the next episode, Kirk rolls out some of his confrontation politics with mixed results. The website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Go there and get lots of more episodes. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Write a review. Do what you can. Spread the word about My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thanks for listening.